All systems were go last week. Uh, the people of God ready to be launched. That's our, our graphic for uh, this, this series. Have you ever thought about launching something so heavy? The, the shuttle is packed with fuel and with all kinds of experiments and other things to be completed in space. And it adds up to 4.5 million pounds ready to launch. I have a hard enough time launching myself out of a chair at about 195 pounds. Um, what do you do? How do you get 4.5 million pounds off the ground? Well, I'm glad you asked. I did some research this week. Um, you notice the, the orange thing in the middle, that big, huge one that's taller than all the rest, that's the external fuel tank. It's a little bit bigger than the one I drove uh, in my Honda CRV this morning. Um, in fact, uh, the combined volume of the external tank's liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen tanks is 73,600 cubic feet equal to the volume of nearly six 1,600 square foot homes. That's the fuel tank, which is going to help lift the shuttle off the ground. Furthermore, the external tank is more than half the length of a football field, and listen to this, 34 feet longer than Orville Wright's historic flight in 1903. <laughs> That's quite a comparison. Despite its size, the aluminum skin of the tank is only an eighth of an inch thick in most areas. Quite impressive. Now, along the side of that, you see those two white towers. Those are the uh, solid rocket boosters. They generate a combined thrust of 5.3 million pounds, equivalent to 44 million horsepower. Uh, what it, maybe you drive a F, you know, Ford F-150 or something like that, and you felt like a manly man this morning. Uh, 44 million horsepower, or 14,700 six-axle diesel locomotives, or 400,000 subcompact cars. When I put my sunglasses on in the driveway and I powered up my Honda CRV. Well, okay, nothing in comparison. It doesn't say if these are hybrid subcompact cars. At liftoff, those two solid rocket boosters consume 11,000 11, pounds of fuel per second. It's not really great gas mileage. 11,000 pounds of fuel per second, and that's two million times the rate at which fuel is burned by the average family car. That is what it takes to get the shuttle off of the ground and into orbit. We looked at last week at God's mission for us, the flight plan for us as all systems were go, and we looked at what might be true of, of our being launched into the world to fulfill God's purposes. The mission till Jesus returns, he told us in Acts 1, verses 8 and 9, are to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And it seems, how do you lift that off the ground? How do you take 11 men at the time who had followed Jesus for three to four years, how do you get them to the ends of the earth? 
This is a mission of love and of grace. We tend to look at Acts 1-8 as our obligation and the command that we got to go witness. And it is that. It's a predictive command. But it is an invitation and a privilege to be com- com- comparters, to be imparting, to be giving out the grace of God and the love of Jesus and the witness of what he has done for us worldwide. That's the mission. In fact, it's not just the mission. It is our mission. Our mission until Jesus returns is to take that to the ends of the earth. So the question becomes, what did it take to get that mission off the ground? Acts 2 is going to tell us. And furthermore, it's going to, it's going to instruct us by way of example What's it going to take if God wants to ignite some fresh movement of blessing and faith in us and through us, in our community, and in Japan, and around the world? What's it going to take? Acts 1 is going to tell us how that movement lifted off in those days and how God may use, by His Spirit, us to be lifted off and impelled into mission. Let's look at Acts 2, verses 1 to 4. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves as they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. First of all, this happened on the day of Pentecost. That is 50 days after Passover, uh, 10 days after the events we were discussing last week. Pentecost is that feast of harvest. And boy, are we going to see a crop this morning. It seems to be that, there may, that the population of Jerusalem may have grown by or reached, either one, a million people who had come together for the combination of these two festivals, Passover and the harvest. And so first we see there was a, a sound a from heaven, a noise as like a mighty rushing wind. It's not that there was a wind that was blowing the place apart, but there was a sound as if there were one. I've never been in a tornado, but I can imagine it must have sounded like that. And then there was a sight. There was these tongues of fire that distributed themselves and rested on each one in the room. And then there was speech. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with different languages as the Spirit was giving them utterance. We're going to see in the next uh, section that uh, those languages applied to the people who were in the crowd at the time. What's it going to take if God is going to launch this movement? It's going to take the supernatural movement of the Holy Spirit. We've read the text. Now let's make the conclusion. It always takes the supernatural power of God by His Spirit if He is going to move among us as He moved among them. This was a miraculous event. The sound the flames above the head, or the things that were like flames, and then the speech in different languages. It always takes the power of the Holy Spirit, whether it's converting a drug addict, whether it's a white-collar criminal, 
whether it's someone from a completely other background, Muslim or Hindu, who comes to understand who Jesus is, it is always the supernatural work of God. Does that mean we ought not to hope for, to ask for, to see God work in miraculous ways? By all means, yes. Around the world, there are places where God has moved first through a, a healing, sometimes through a vision or a dream that someone received in the night and then began to pursue. What did that dream mean? Sometimes it's been a power encounter in a village where the people there worshipped a certain tree or a certain orchard, and those who were led to bring the gospel into that place decided we need to cut down that tree in order to show that the God we represent is more powerful than the gods they fear. The supernatural power of God is being used around the world, and He wants to be used among us in whatever way He chooses, in our culture, in our day, our time. So it takes the power of God. Let's appeal to Him that He work with power through us on our street, in our offices, on our campuses, that God, that the Lord Jesus Himself be honored. It takes the supernatural power of God always by His Spirit. And it takes people whose curiosity has been aroused and who seek to understand the meaning of that. Let's read the next section. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, perhaps staying before the, for the feasts, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, they came together. We presume that's the sound of the rushing wind that wasn't destroying a house, but made it sound like there's a tornado inside there. Maybe later on, the sound of those people speaking their languages. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together. They were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Galileans, these were the country bumpkins of Israel, the people who lived in Jerusalem, more sophisticated. They didn't have that crazy accent of those people who lived up in Galilee. Aren't, they, are they, aren't these Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born. Down to verse 11. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God and they all continued in amazement and great perplexity saying to one another, what does this mean? Of course, they're always hard soil everywhere the seed is planted. Others were mocking and saying, ah, oh, they're full of sweet wine. Notice, first of all, the diversity of languages from every language from under heaven. That's, that's Luke's way of expressing from all over the place. If we said, man, we met, went to a wedding and there were people from all over Texas there. That means they're from Lubbock and Amarillo and from Pasadena and from the Valley. We don't mean that from every single town in Texas. We just mean from everywhere. Well, these languages were from all over the place. In fact, let's look and see that. They were from all of those places all of those places named by their names more or less in the day, language of that time. Or if you want to say it in the way we would recognize them, uh, they, those Jews came from all of those places, had gathered in Jerusalem. Don't you hear echoes of what God has been saying all along? God said to Abraham, Abraham, Genesis 12, Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth, are going to be blessed. David declared in Psalm 67, God, our God blesses us. 
that the ends of the earth might fear him. <laughs> Isaiah says, I have made you a light to the, to the nations. And in that view, which was referenced earlier this morning, in Revelation 5 and 7, we're going to see a crowd around the throne of Jesus worshiping him because it, every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be represented. Jesus had told these men, look, you're going to be witnesses unto me to the remotest parts of the globe. This is a hint. The thing is starting. We're launching, and the power of God is lifting us off. You notice their reaction as we get back to, to that slide. Um, they, the people's reaction, they are bewildered, amazed, astonished, amazement, and perplexity, great perplexity. In other words, what they're observing arouses great curiosity, and they ask two questions. First of all, how in the world is this possible? And second, what's the significance of this? What does it mean that we are, what we are observing? We've heard this morning during the announcements about VBS. You saw slides before the service about short-term trips, various parts of the world. Um, we've already talked about our neighbors, our classmates, our working companions, our relatives. What if God so worked in us that what people around us observed in us aroused their curiosity and they said, how is it possible? What if God so worked in us that when we're in a doctor's office and we get a negative diagnosis, it's cancer or it's something inoperable, and the doctor observes the kind of trust in us. He says, how, how is it possible you're receiving news like this? What if when we're at a graveside and we are grief-stricken and at the same time we are filled with hope because of what we have in the Lord Jesus, and those who don't know Jesus yet look at us and say, how in the world do you respond like that? What if people were to come to VBS Adults with their families on an evening VBS, the first time we've done that, maybe forever, at least in a long, long, long time. What if they were to come among us and receive welcome and experience supernatural love that only Jesus can pour out through our hearts, and they begin to question, how in the world can there be a group of people like this? How in the world? What does this mean? Oh, that God would use us to arouse curiosity, that he would work so powerfully in us that that supernatural quality arouses curiosity and creates seeking hearts. It also takes people who are boldly willing to share the truth, the gospel. Verse 14, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. That's no shrinking violet right there, is it? <laughs> Let's look at further at how Peter addresses the crowd. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Verse 29, brethren, I may confidently say to you. <laughs> Verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain. Verse 38. Let each one of you. <laughs> Peter 
is as bold as a lion on this day. So we go back to verse 15. First of all, these men aren't drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. It's only, it's only 9 o'clock. No good Jew would be found taking that uh, at this time of day. Uh, when the Holy Spirit came, let's just say it was 8.45, maybe 8.30, and they experienced this powerful miracle of being able to speak other languages they'd never learned. In my line of work, it's valuable. I left my phone over there on the, on the bench. In my line of work, it's valuable to be able to speak Spanish for the last seven years. That's been a, a goal of mine. And if you look on my phone, there's an app called Duolingo. It helps you learn another language. And if I will do it today, I haven't yet, but if I'll do it today, I'll have reached something like 630 consecutive days on Duolingo. Now, that, I, I wish the Holy Spirit had just come like at 845 one morning. And <laughs> For those of you ministering in Japan or have ministered in Japan, you wish the same. In a miracle, these people are now speaking foreign languages they never had to study. And I'm guessing, I'm just guessing that they didn't have Galilean accents when they said it. I talk like a gringo when I speak Spanish. I'm guessing they spoke eloquent, uh, eloquently and fluently in the language that the Holy Spirit gave them as they were able to declare the deeds of God. And so Peter says, no, it's not alcohol that, that brought this on. He says... Verse 16, this was what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says. Now he starts in the last days, and then and his, his, this part of his speech goes down to verse uh, 21. Uh, I'm sorry, the end of verse 20. In the day of the Lord, in the beginning of the last days, Jesus has inaugurated them. In the day of the Lord, that will culminate the last days, yet future to us, when Jesus will culminate uh, the last days. And so he says, this is what was prophesied through the prophet Joel. In the last days I will pour out forth my spirit on all mankind, sons, daughters, young men, old men, uh, bond slaves, male, female. In those days I will pour forth my spirit. That's the main point he's making in the first part of this, uh, his, his uh, announcement to the people. There will be spirit-given messages, poured, the spirit poured forth, with visions, and there will be judgments of natural catastrophe in the end times. And in between that inauguration and that culmination, we have a job to do. We have an offer to make. Peter concludes the first part of his speech in verse 21, and it shall be, <laughs> it shall be, I love that promise, it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter is bridging from how is this miracle possible to what does it mean? What this means for everyone without exclusion, any and all, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's going to tell us a little bit more about what that saved means. But that's what this means. That's the next portion of his talk. What does this mean? It means that God is offering to everybody the opportunity to be restored to relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, who is that Lord? And why do we need to be saved? That's the next part of what he wants to tell us. Why do we need saving? Notice how Peter introduces and then concludes this main segment of his sermon that day. 
verse And they can't deny. God wants you to know is that none of this merits anything with the Holy God. What God wants you to know is that there's a blessed truth we all must realize, and that is we are, we are sinners. And it's a beautiful thing to recognize that, to confess that in front of God. We're sinners. We've all gone astray. But there's better news. You see, Jesus' death was part of God's plan. Notice what, what Peter says. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. In other words, God attested to the very deity of Jesus. This man, uh, God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, our sin didn't shock God, and he made a plan from all eternity past that he would send his son to die in our place to cover for our sins. Our religious deeds don't do it, but Jesus' death covers for our sins. I love that hymn that says, Rock of ages, be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath, Jesus died on the cross for us. And make me pure, he imparts his righteousness to us. 
And so Peter says to them, God determined this even before you murdered him on the cross. Furthermore, God raised him from the dead, verse 24. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again. And in verse 31, David, prophetically speaking, of the resurrection of the Christ. And, in, and let's go back to verse 32. This Jesus raised, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. We've seen him alive from the dead. We've spent time with him, and we testify to you. Jesus lives. Jesus died for our sins. He rose again to offer us life. This is the news Peter announces to the people there. Not only is Jesus raised from the dead, though, there's more. Just like the infomercials say, wait, if you order today, you can get two for the price of one. Look what Jesus did for us, or God did. It says in verse uh, 33, he is therefore exalted at the right hand of God. This is the place of supreme honor and absolute power. Furthermore, he has received and poured out this Holy Spirit. You wonder why to know why what just happened at 9 o'clock this morning? Because Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit to do these miraculous things among us. Furthermore, God has authoritatively enthroned him as both Lord and Christ. We get down to verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified. You thought you're just killing a man, a heretic, a bothersome rebel of some type, uh, someone who's creating social upheaval. You thought you were killing him, but you killed the Lord Christ. Now, as a teenager, uh, we used to have these things called youth rallies. They were kind of like big events to which young people would go, Christian young people. And um, my parents... This is the embarrassing part. My parents went with me to a youth rally. If you're a youth, you know that sophisticated age where you're embarrassed to admit that you had to have parents in order to enter into the world? Well, I was there. Thankfully, they were compassionate. They didn't sit in the same row with me. Uh, I was near the front. There's a man beside me. I didn't pay much attention. My mom kept trying to make signs and speak words and indicate something to me, and I am so terrible at reading lips and figuring out stuff that's silent across distance, and I just didn't get it. And I looked at the man and kind of looked away, and I really, I think I was more interested in uh, who were the good-looking girls in the group rather than anything else, and so I blew my mom off completely and more or less blew off the guy next to me. When they announced the speaker... Rock Royer, who was seated next to me, got up to address us. He had been a defensive coach with the University of Maryland and was getting ready to, I think, at that time, become a, a defense a assistant coach at uh, Annapolis, a Naval Academy. And so he was our speaker, and he got up there and gave a bang-up message for the gospel. Well, the point is, I dissed uh, a speaker. I dissed Rock Royer uh, because I was too cool to admit that I, I needed to be nice to him. The Jews didn't just diss a speaker. The Jews of that day, and we, by participation with them, put our sin upon Jesus and caused him to be crucified. And so when P 
Peter announces to the crowd. God has established him, has enthroned him, has announced officially his designation. He is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is God. And he is Christ. He's the Messiah for us. What was their reaction? Now, when they heard this, verse 37, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter, they, were, they had a spirit-given deep conviction of soul and sin. And they were conscience-stricken. They said to Peter, brothers, what do we do? What do we do? Peter said to them, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. What is he saying? He's saying, turn from what you've been thinking about God and turn to God. Turn from your sin to God. Place your faith in Jesus. It's going to be clear that he means that in verse 41. He said, those who received his word, verse 43, who had believed. In other words, this is an issue of faith. Put your faith in Christ. Turn from your sin and receive forgiveness. Oh, man. Do you hear that word? Forgiveness. Our past wiped away. And not only will you receive forgiveness, but you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What Josh talked about this morning. We will receive the Holy Spirit, God himself living within us. For the promises for you and your children, this generation and the next, and not only that, for all who are, uh, for those who are far away or far off, as many as call on the Lord Jesus Christ, shall, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. An unlimited universal appeal to the ends of the earth. Whoever will call in the name of the Lord. What's it take? It takes a person willing to share the truth and call for a decision. Verses 42 to 47 are our favorite verses for many people. It takes God's people living radically, changed lives. Um, we're going to consider Peter next week. I've been reading ahead, and I know that there's some stuff we need to say about him next week. We're going to do that. Verses 42 to 47 describe the communal life of the people of God, how they live out the beauty of Jesus in community, in a loving, we're not going to read those verses, in a loving, supportive uh, unified, uh, self-sacrificing way. They sold their goods to support those who had needs. This is a community that when people looked at it, they knew this was something of God. The preceding verses and the closing verses of that paragraph tell us everything. Verse 41, so then those who had received Peter's word were baptized, and they were added to that day about, there were added that day about 3,000 souls twice or three times the number of people on our property in one day after one message. Furthermore, after living that kind of life, verse 47, they were praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. That is the miracle of the power of God. We could talk more about it. We're not going to this morning. So what is it going to take? And we're also going to talk about prayer next week. I've read ahead and it fits better with next, week message, next week's message. Let's go to this. There's 4.5 million pounds of stuff, a payload, on the shuttle to be taken into space. Friends, listen to me. We got something way more valuable than the most valuable, precious payload ever packed onto the shuttle. We have the love and grace and forgiveness of Jesus to offer worldwide. That's our privilege and our calling.
question is, as we sit on the launch pad, waiting for the Spirit to lift us off, what changes do we make? What changes do I make to get me off the couch and across the street to my new Iraqi neighbors? What changes do I make to pray down the street of my neighborhood? What changes do we make when we go to the office, when we get on Zoom, when we interact with classmates, when we talk with our relatives? What changes do we make so that we are prepared to be lifted off by the power of the Holy Spirit? We come to a time of the Lord's table. And in this time, we celebrate today what it seems they celebrated back then. It appears, men, if you would come forward. It says in verses 42 to 47 of that text that they celebrated the breaking of the bread. Not breaking bread like taking meals, but, but breaking of the bread. In other words, it appears that they were taking on a daily basis in homes, maybe sometimes in the temple, we don't know, but they were taking the Lord's Supper together in order to enjoy remembering what Jesus had done for them. Phenomenal thing. This is just 50 days after Passover. And they are looking at elements that remind them of the very sacrifice which some of them observed, maybe if not up close like John was, maybe at a distance like others may have been. But there they were taking of the bread to remind them that Jesus' body was offered for them. They are taking of the cup to remind them that Jesus' blood was shed for them. Friends, please look at me and hear these words. If you have not yet trusted Christ as your Savior, this meal is not for you. It may be in the future. However, if you would like to trust Jesus today, today's your lucky day. <laughs> today's your spirit-given moment Today's your divinely planned time to experience the blessing of the Lord Jesus, to experience forgiveness of sin forever and the presence of God by His Spirit living inside you forever. Simply, you need, you can receive God's offer of forgiveness. You could pray something like this, Lord Jesus, I believe you are God from all eternity. I believe that I am a sinner and that you died on the cross to cover my penalty for sin. And right now, in this moment, I place my faith solely in the Lord Jesus Christ. I turn from my past to this provision of eternal life. And I place my faith in Jesus and I receive in my empty hands the gift of his life given to me. If you will make that decision, today's your day to partake of the Lord's table as they did in those early days, remembering Jesus' death, the awesome payment he paid for each one of us. We have in front of us, in front of us these two elements, <laughs> the bread and the cup, representing the body and the blood of Jesus. Later on, we will take them after we're sure that everyone has been served. And we will do that in unison, just as they did house to house, 
around the city of Jerusalem, remembering that day Jesus died on the cross for all of them. Men, I'm sorry, this is the first time we've done this in a good number of years. Do y'all need to come forward in order to present these or, and be served? And if that is the case, if you will. Let me sing for us while we wait for the men to come forward. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss the Father turns his face away that wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory. Behold that man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. His dying breath brought us life. Thank you, Jesus. Let's partake of the bread together. <laughs> what can wash away our sin? Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We praise Jesus for his death on our behalf. Let's take together. 